Welcome to Frontline Church, South OKC's podcast, where each week we upload a new sermon from our sermon series. If you have any questions or concerns or need prayer for anything, feel free to reach out at hello at frontlinechurch.com. Thank you. sermon comes from Genesis 4, 1 through 7. The word of God speaks to us. Now Adam knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. And again, she bore his brother Abel. Now Abel was a keeper of sheep, and Cain a worker of the ground. In the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground, and Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel in his offering, but for Cain in his offering, he had no regard. So Cain was very angry, and his face fell. The Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry, and why is your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is contrary to you, but you must rule over it. This is God's word to us. Be to God. Awesome. Hey, good morning, guys. It's good to see you guys. Hope uh, you enjoyed your extra hour of sleep. You either, you either took that or stayed up like three extra hours last night. It's one of those two options. Uh, it's good to have you with us. Hey, I, I see some faces that I've not uh, had the chance to meet. Uh, me and the team here would love to find out any questions that you have about Frontline or ways that we could get you more uh, involved in the life of the church. So it's good to have you. Uh, one of the things that gets asked a lot around here is why do we do some of the, the things that we do on Sundays? Why do, we, why do we pray the prayers the way that we pray them? Or we use the phrase, why, why do we have these liturgical moments? And the, the quick reason why for that, uh, the first is that we actually believe that you're not showing up as a consumer but you're showing up to contribute to what God is doing, especially if you're here and you're a follower of Jesus. Like you're not watching something happen, you're participating. You're doing the work of ministry with us. You're praying the prayers with us. And the, the second reason why we do this is because we actually believe that you're far more moldable than you and I often think we are. Uh, you are so moldable, and if you weren't, then uh, marketing and advertisement would not be a thing, but it's a thing because we are, we're, we're moldable people, and so all week long, you've been shaped, you've been formed to desire certain things, to love certain things, to see the world a certain way, and what we're doing on Sundays is we're actually showing up, and we're, we're, we're standing underneath the authority of the Word of God to, to let God shape us to let his word inform us, to, to, to desire what he desires, to love what he loves, and learn to hate what he hates. Amen? So that's why we do what we do each Sunday. And if you're here and you're just not sure what you think about the Bible or Jesus or any of this stuff, man, we are honored with your presence. We love that you're here. There is no silly question. There's no question that's off limits. We want you to come on in and, and ask away and, and just jump into community. Sound good? Okay, well, I'm excited about today, even though today is another weighty sermon. You're like, man, how many sermons are going to be weighty in Genesis? Well, Genesis 1 through 11 is sort of a downward spiral, so maybe a lot of them. But uh, uh, for, for now, we'll just jump into chapter 4 and 5. So let me pray for us. If you have a Bible, grab it, go to Genesis 4 and 5, and we'll get to work. Father, would you meet us today? And we just are grateful for the Word of God, the way that it shapes us. And today, God, I'm praying that you would shape us to hate sin more, to, to, have a, to have a healthy fear of sin, to actually realize the damaging effects of sin and where, where that's going in our lives and we don't even notice. We pray that you would give us today eyes to see. 
We pray that you would give us an awareness of what's happening. And God, we pray especially for, for those of us that are even on the brink of blowing up our whole lives. God, we pray today that you would snatch us from the fire, that you would rescue us, that you would redeem us. And I pray today that for my friends that need encouragement, that your word would meet them with mercy and grace. And for those of us that need kind of to be sobered up today, we pray that you would sober us up. So whatever we're carrying, we just need you. We need you to come and move and make your word come alive today. pray these things in your name. Amen. In March of 1898, Lieutenant Colonel John Henry Patterson found himself in the Savo region of Kenya. And he was there because he was overseeing a railroad project that was going to take a Kenyan railroad from Kenya all the way to the, the ocean, the Indian Ocean. So this is a pretty large project. And he gets off the train, he goes to the campsite, and it was just a few days after getting to his campsite that people started disappearing one by one by one. What was happening was over the course of the next nine months, two very large, extremely dangerous male Savo lions that didn't have manes, they were maneless, giant lions, were walking around the camp and periodically would come in at night and grab men out of their tents, drag their bodies out of the campground and eat them. And this kept happening, kept happening, kept increasing. There was a short period where it stopped, but then there started to trickle in from surrounding villages that those lions were attacking these other villages that were surrounding this area. And then eventually the, the lions came back. And when they came back, they came back with a fierceness where at first it was just one of them that would sneak into the campsite but over time, what happened is both of them started sneaking into the campsite together and would both identify a, a victim, attack the victim, grab and pull that victim out of the camp and eat them. And so the, the villagers and, and Patterson, they did everything that they knew to do. They ended up building like this giant bonfire that would surround the, the tent or the, the camp thinking that that would keep them out. They tried setting traps. None of it worked. They eventually built this fence made out of this really sharp wood that was like spikes everywhere. And the fence went all the way around the campsite. And what was happening is, true story, these lions were literally jumping over the massive fence or coming through the fence and still were attacking people. And this kept happening. Eventually, uh, John Henry Patterson found himself on the offensive with these animals. He went on the hunt, him and about 20 other people, and he started to track them, started to try to hunt them with a lot of unsuccessful attempts until finally one day he was able to shoot one of the lions multiple times and he killed this lion. I've got a photo of it right here for you to see. It was so large that it took eight grown men to carry the carcass back to camp. Eight grown men had to pick this thing up and bring it back. But what was happening now is the second lion started to harass and attack and go on the hunt of this guy, Patterson. So the second lion starts to like show up at his tent side and show up overnight trying to attack Patterson. And so finally Patterson, he shoots it nine times, a total of nine times before it dies. And in his biography, he claims that he was hiding behind a fallen branch and the lion died trying to gnaw through the branch to kill him. Like it's just unbelievably aggressive, these two lions. You can read about his full story in his biography entitled The Man Eaters of Savo, or you can go to Chicago today, and in the Field Museum there, you can actually see these two stuffed lions. And he says in his biography that they killed over the course of nine months about 135 people, 135 people that these lions killed, now, or these people killed. So uh, wh why do I start 
today's sermon with that analogy. Well, well here's why. I, I, I think that very, very few of you are ever going to face uh, an actual lion that is going to kill you. That's probably not a threat that, that many of us are going to face on a, ever in our lifetime. And yet, there is a crouching killer there is a killer that's even more fierce, even more terrifying, even more threatening that isn't just something that you may encounter one day in the future, but even before you got here this morning have already encountered. There's a crouching killer that you're going to face every moment of every day that's even more fierce than the, the, these two Savo man-eating Lions, and we're going to read about that in Genesis chapter 4. Now, listen, there's a lot that happens here in chapter 4 and in chapter 5. And so what I want to do is I want to just take a moment and set up the story because there's often a lot of details that you and I just fly over and miss and it loses its color. So this is a story that if you grew up in church, you might be familiar with. If you didn't grow up in church, maybe you at least heard of Cain and Abel. But there's so much more here that often goes undetected that we need to look at. The first is just remember where we are in the story. This is Genesis chapter 4. The thing that just happened was Adam and Eve made a decision to eat of the forbidden tree. They sinned against God. And when they chose to sin in Genesis chapter 3, a few things happened. They severed their relationship with God first and foremost. But then the curse of sin, the brokenness of sin, starts to get unleashed on themselves and the world to where it affects their relationship both in marriage and with humanity in general. And it even affects their relationship to creation itself. And so where we ended last week was with God exiling Adam and Eve east out of the garden. He pushes them out. He drives them out of the garden because Adam and Eve are no longer good for the garden. They're now damaging and destructive, and so they're driven out of the garden. And, and that, that idea of humanity moving east is not just geographically important. It's also symbolic. Every time in Scripture you see someone moving east, it is actually telling you a profoundly spiritual reality. Peter Lightheart says it this way. He says, from Genesis 3, west to east movement is always movement away from God's presence in his house. Eastward movement is always movement away from God. Westward movement, westward movement rather, is always movement back toward the garden. And then John Salheimer, he says this. He says, in the Genesis narrative, when people go east, they leave the land of blessing, Eden, and the promised land, and they go to a land where their greatest hopes will turn to ruin, Babylon and Sodom. And that's exactly what we see happening in Genesis chapter 4, is that Adam and Eve's greatest hopes turn to ruin literally almost within five or six verses. So with that in mind, let's work our way through the text. Look at verse 1. Here's what it says. Now Adam knew his, wife's, his wife Eve. That's not like a mental knowledge. That's like a, a sexual knowledge. Adam knew his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain, saying, notice these words, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. Now, this is really fascinating. Like, Cain, his name means something. In Hebrew, his name sounds almost identical to a phrase that means, I have gotten or I have acquired. And what's happening here is fascinating. I actually think that what's happening here is not Eve just 
praising God that she is having a baby. But I think what's happening here is that Eve is boasting that she's acquired a man. Some translations say, uh, I have acquired a male son. And so I think Eve here is not just thanking God. She's saying, I've done this. I've acquired a male son with the help of the Lord, but I've done this. I've brought this man into existence. And and you're going to see why that's the case as we work our way through the story. But here's what's fascinating already, just at the, the, the very first verse here, is that Eve is celebrating Cain's birth. And she's saying, I've done something significant here. Why does that matter? Well, do you remember in chapter three, what God said to the serpent when he cursed the serpent? He said, hey, there's coming a day where this woman is going to have a a, a son. There's going to be an offspring of this woman who will crush the head of the serpent. So if you're Eve and you're hearing the story, what are you thinking is happening right now? You're like, this is the son. I I just had the son that's going to crush the head of the serpent. I've acquired a male son. He is going to crush the serpent, and he's going to get us back to Eden. He's going to do it. We've solved our problem. Things are going to get right again. That's what Eve is thinking in this story. And it becomes even more clear when you look at what happens next. Look at verse 2. And again, she bore his brother Abel. Now, Abel was a keeper of sheep and Cain, a worker of the ground. So Abel and Cain both take on the two different roles that Adam was playing as both shepherd and farmer. Now these two boys, one becomes a farmer, one becomes a shepherd. But did you notice something? She celebrates when she has Cain, but what does she not do when she has Abel? No celebration, no acknowledgement of what his name means. There's no sort of like joy at all. It's like Cain's born, I've acquired a male son. Here's the serpent crusher. He's going to fix everything. He's going to put it to rights. Oh, and I guess I had Abel. It's sort of an afterthought, not a big deal. In fact, even the word Abel in Hebrew, it shows up in the Old Testament in the book of Ecclesiastes, and it's the word for vanity or meaningless or vapor or breath. So Abel's very name has the sense of like afterthought. Here one second gone the next, really not that significant. Now, can you imagine the dynamic between these two sons growing up and every time their name is called, Cain's name is called and, and there's that remembrance of like Cain. Yeah, he, he's the one that's gonna come rescue everything. He's, he's gonna crush the head of the serpent. He's gonna fix all of this stuff. Oh, and Abel too. Abel's just kind of around. Abel's there. That would have been a, a really interesting dynamic between these two sons. Now, with that in mind, let's keep reading. Look at verse three. And in the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground. And Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. So Cain, look at this, was very angry and his face fell. Two two different offerings, one was accepted and the other was rejected. Now, people throughout history have offered all kinds of speculations as to what might be happening here. Why did God look at Abel and his offering and accept it, but then he looked at Cain and his offering and he he didn't accept it? What's going on here? And, And some of the speculation is really interesting. Some people have said, well, it's because, you know, God really prefers animal sacrifice. And so when Abel sacrificed someone, you know, an animal from his flock and brought it to God, well, that was that was more preferred as opposed to what Cain brought. Or some have said, well, notice here, Abel brought the firstborn of his flock, and Cain did not bring the first fruits of his 
his uh, fruit. He didn't bring the first fruits. And so maybe, maybe it's showing that Abel's heart was to, to be more generous and to be more sacrificial. Others have been like, maybe God just doesn't like fruit. You know, maybe he just prefers brisket. Like fatty brisket is what God desires. And yeah, amen, right? And, and like fruit is like maybe not his, his thing, you know? There's all these really interesting dynamics at play here. But what we find out in the New Testament is that it actually has nothing to do with what they were offering. In fact, the reason why God looks at one and accepts the offering and looks at the other and rejects it has nothing to do with what's being offered. You can read through Deuteronomy and realize that fruit is an acceptable offering to God. That that offering the firstborn of your flock is also an acceptable offering to God. Both are called an offering and both are fine in and of themselves. So the issue is not what is being offered. The issue is who is doing the offering. Who, who is actually offering? That's where the issue lies. And here's what we find out in the New Testament. Hebrews 11.4 is going to praise Abel for his righteousness and faith. And we're told nothing about Cain's righteousness or faith. Here's what it says. By faith, Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain, through which he was commended as righteous. God commending him by accepting his gifts. Furthermore, we read this in 1 John 3 about Cain. It says, we should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. And, and notice, why? Why did he murder his brother? Because his own deeds were evil and his brother's righteous. So what's happening here is less about what is being offered, and it's more about the, the heart posture of the offerer. That one of them is righteous, one of them is desiring to please God, and one of them is not righteous and does not have faith and does not want to please God. And so God looks at Abel, and he receives and accepts and looks with favor on Abel in his offering, and he rejects Cain's. And furthermore, instead of Cain going, oh my gosh, I didn't know, like, what, what can I do to bring an acceptable offering? What needs to change about me? What, what should I do, God, to, to do something that would bring you honor and delight and joy? What do I do? What do I change? Cain doesn't do any of that. Instead, we read in verse 5, So Cain was very angry, and his face fell. In fact, that, that word, his face fell in Hebrew, is a way to talk about depression. Cain spirals into anger and depression. Now, now remember, think about Cain for just a minute. He's the firstborn son. He's the one that's supposed to crush the head of the serpent. He's been told his whole life how significant he is and how much he matters. And so here he's like, well, my little brother gets accepted by God. Abel, the, the breath, the vapor, the, the meaningless one, he gets accepted by God. And I don't, the oldest one gets overlooked. Cain is incensed and he is depressed. And that leads me to the three things that I want you to see today about the nature of sin. The first is the subtlety of sin, and then I want you to see the spiral of sin, and then we'll close by looking at the solution of sin. So real quickly, here's the first one, the subtlety of sin. Look at verse six. The Lord said to Cain, why are you angry? And why has your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, notice this line, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is contrary to you, but you must rule over it. I think this idea of sin being a croucher, a crouching killer, is maybe one of the most vivid 
artistic, helpful descriptions of sin that we get in the entire Bible. Sin here is described as a crouching lion that is seeking to devour. Now, let me just ask something. Why does a lion crouch? Like, there's probably a lot of reasons why, but what's the most basic reason why a lion would crouch? It's to hide. They don't want to be seen. Sin is a croucher, and what it does at its very core is hide from view. This is why God even has to warn Cain, hey, be careful because outside of your door, you're not even going to notice it. You're going to walk out of your house, and sin is there crouching. It's a crouching killer, and it's hiding from you. You're not going to notice. I'm warning you to pay attention to see what is hard to see, that it's there. It's hiding right? So here's, here's the, the crazy reality with Cain, is that Cain does not feel like there's a crouching killer outside of his door. What does Cain feel like? Well, Cain just feels justified in his anger. Cain feels overlooked. He feels slighted. He feels underappreciated. The absolute danger with sin, both for Cain and for you and I today, is that often it makes itself look really small and insignificant and hide so that we just don't think it's that big of a deal. It's not a crouching killer. It's just, I've been overlooked, and I'm angry, and I'm sad about it. There's a lot of ways that sin hides in our culture and in our lives. Let me just give you three of them real briefly. The first is the way that sin can hide even intellectually, even intellectually. Like maybe you're here, and you've been here the last few weeks, and you're like, man, this church talks a lot about sin, right? Why does this church talk so much about sin? Is it, it's 2023, are we still talking about sin? Isn't that an outdated old concept? And in fact, in our cultural moment today, what's crazy is not only, really the only sin in our culture is to say that something is a sin, right? Like if you don't affirm my every desire and my every longing and you don't let me just pursue what it is that I want because the world is a canvas for me to, to just display who I really am to everybody else. If you don't accept me and applaud me and celebrate me, and, and even more so, if you say what I'm doing is sinful, then you're abusive. Like you're, you're triggering me. You're, you're offensive. You're, you're toxic. I can't have you in my life. That's the way that we treat people who talk about sin. It's outdated, it's obscure, it's ridiculous. In fact, here's a really interesting study. Recent, uh, recent Barna research tells us that, quote, 77% of self-described Christians agree with the statement, people are basically good. 77% of people who would say they're Christians would say we're basically good. Yeah, there's, there's a few people out there that are monsters and they're evil and they do wrong things. Everybody else is basically good. And we've just done away with sin as a culture altogether. I mean, imagine right now having a logical, reasoned conversation with a professor at virtually any university in the U.S. about sin. You're going to get laughed out of the room. It's outdated. It's an old concept just used by the religious powers at, at B to keep people at bay. But here's the problem with that, friends. If that's your vision of sin, then what do you call mass shootings? What do you, what do you call racism? What word would you describe for sexual abuse? If we do away with sin, how do we understand these horrible, tragic things that actually happen all the time in our world? So not only does sin hide intellectually, but the other way sin hides is conceptually. And what I mean by that is that often the way that we conceive of someone who is a sinner, the way that we conceptualize what that person might be like is that they're just an absolute monster. They're horrible, they're evil, and it's obvious. Like these people are monsters. Everybody's basically good for the most part, 
but there's a few people out there that are moral monsters. And here's the problem with that. Let me show you this photo of this man. This man looks like an innocent old man, doesn't he? Looks like a kind man. In fact, if you had this guy as your neighbor, you'd probably let your kids go trick-or-treating at his house. But the, the tragic thing about this man is he's also known as the bookkeeper of Auschwitz. And he is an accomplice to the murder of some 300,000 Hungarian Jews. And you just think about this man and you're like, he doesn't look like a killer. He doesn't look like a monster. He looks like a normal guy. In fact, dare I say, he looks like one of us. And that's the point. Friends, that's the point. He is one of us. He is one of us. He grew up, he was a five-year-old once, an eight-year-old once, a 12-year-old. You think he grew up thinking, I want to I play a role in helping exterminate upwards of 300,000 Hungarian Jews. Do you think that's how he grew up thinking that he wanted to die a monster? No. Sin is crouching, and it crouches even in our concept of what it is to be a sinner. And then finally, maybe the most, the most real way that we face this on a day-to-day basis is the way that sin hides personally. And what I mean by that is that sin itself hides, and it hides from us. It crouches in a way that you and I don't even feel its presence in the room or in our heart. This happens in a million different ways. Let me just give you a few examples so that you can think about sin and how it might be crouching at your door. Workaholism hides itself as just taking your job seriously. Holding a grudge hides itself as moral outrage at something justifiable. Materialism hides itself as ambition to work hard and achieve something. Arrogance hides itself as healthy assertion. Obsession with appearances hides itself as I'm just taking care of my body. Unforgiveness hides itself as, well, my counselor told me that what I feel is justified. Pornography hides itself as, well, if you knew my marriage and if you understood the dynamic, you would have some sympathy on me. Or it hides itself as this is just a stress reliever. Selfishness hides itself as I'm finally taking care of myself for once. Gossip hides itself as I just needed to get it out there so that you would pray for me. Refusal to say the hard thing hides itself as well, I just want to be loving and missional to that person. And on and on and on we could go where there's all these subtle ways where sin itself is making itself small. It's hiding, it's crouching, so that you and I just assume that it's fine, that it's in the room, that we can live with it. And in fact, it's actually not a crouching killer. It's something that's helping us live. And this is the danger of sin. And friends, I just want to invite you to think about this. Why does sin crouch? Yes, to hide, but what's the end game? What's the goal? What's the purpose of sin crouching? Well, every crouching lion is crouching not just to hide, but what? To pounce. It wants to kill and it wants to destroy. And this is what this text is saying. Look at verse 7 again, the second half of it. It says, sin is crouching at the door. Its desires contrary to you, but you must rule over it. The same exact line that we saw in Genesis chapter 3 about Eve's desire to, to rule over her, her husband. Or another translation, maybe even a better translation of this verse, says sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is for you, but you must rule over it. Sin is hiding so that it can pounce because when it pounces, it wants to rule you and take over. Tim Keller said this. He said, sin has an abiding, growing 
presence in your life. If you commit sin, sin is not over. Sin is is not simply an action. It's a force. It's a power that when you sin, it's not now over, but it actually becomes a presence in your life. It takes shape and it stays with you and begins to affect you. Either way, friends, this is, this is your option right, right here. Either you will rule over sin or sin will rule over you and there is no other third, third way. Or to say it the way that John Owen said it in the mortification of sin, be killing sin or it will be killing you. And those are your options. Right now, in this moment, sin is hiding, it's crouching, ready to pounce, and your options are either you rule it or it rules you. There is no third way. You kill it or it kills you. There is no other option. And that leads me to the second thing that I want you to see, which is not just the subtlety of sin, but the spiral of sin. Notice verse eight, what it says. Cain spoke to Abel, his brother, and when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. Now, isn't that shocking? And I know that some of us are familiar with that story, so it's easy not to be shocked by what's coming. But if you did not know the story, like God just talked to Cain. He just addressed Cain. He just warned him about this crouching killer. And then the next thing you see is Cain, he lures his brother to the field. And it just very simply, very coldly says, and he rose up against his brother and killed him. It's tragic. Look at verse 9. Then the Lord said to Cain, where is Abel, your brother? And he said, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? And the Lord said, what have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. And now you are cursed from the ground, which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you work the ground, it shall no longer Yield to you its strength. You shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth. See, sin was crouching at Cain's door. He was even warned about it, and yet sin pounced, and it took over. And here's the spiral of sin that I want you to notice. There's a lot of ways you see it in chapter 4 and in chapter 5, but the biggest way is this. If you compare Genesis chapter 3 with Genesis chapter 4, already the spiral of sin is at play. Though. Actually, Genesis chapter 4, in some way, is a retelling of Genesis chapter 3. But instead of Adam and Eve, now it's Cain and Abel. And there's different characters, but the same story is playing out again and again. Like his father Adam, God had called Cain to rule over the beast. But what ended up happening is the beast ruled over him. And like his father Adam, his decision to sin and let the beast rule over him led to the curse of sin. And that begins to unfold again in chapter 4. And did you notice the similarities between the questions that God asks when he shows up in the Garden of Eden to Adam and Eve and how similar they are to the questions that he's asking Cain in chapter 4? He shows up in chapter 3 and he says this. He says, where are you to Adam and Eve? He shows up in chapter 4 and he says, where is your brother Abel? Now it's not just that you've eaten a forbidden fruit, but now there's blood in the ground and your brother's dead. Where is he? He shows up to Adam and Eve and he says, what is this that you have done in Genesis chapter three? Same words again in chapter four. What have you done? And even more so, here's the spiral of sin, that in chapter three, Adam and Eve, when they sin, what do they do? They realize that they're naked. They feel the sting of shame, which is a good sting, 
and they run and they hide, which is not good. They should have ran to God, but they run and they hide. But at least they felt the shame enough to run and hide. What does Cain do? He just stands right there, feels nothing, nothing is happening, no shame whatsoever. And God shows up and he says, hey, where is Abel? And he goes, I don't know. Am I my brother's keeper? Blood on his fingernails. And he's going, I don't know where he's at. I'm not responsible for my brother. And the tragedy of that, friends, is even the word that he uses for, am I my brother's keeper, is the same word in Hebrew for what God created Adam to do in the garden, to work the ground and to keep it. Adam was called to keep and protect and use his strength to bless. And here, Cain uses his strength to rise up against his brother. And instead of keeping, he kills. This is the devastation and the spiral of sin. Chapter three is bad enough, but it leads to chapter four, and chapter four is worse. You see the spiral in one other way, and that's with the genealogy, which is like your least favorite part of everything in scripture. But there's something said here that is really important to catch of. There's all these, there's all these generations happening, but it ends with a guy named Lamech who has three sons. And Lamech is an escalation of Cain's evil and brokenness and dysfunction at every level. In fact, here's what we read about Lamech in verse 19. It says, and Lamech took two wives. Now remember Genesis, Genesis was chapter two, God created man and woman and he brings the woman to the man and it says, a man will leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. God's original design and intention for marriage was one man and one woman in covenantal love. That is what marriage was intended to be. And what is Lamech doing here? He takes this gift of marriage and immediately distorts it and twists it. And now in greed and in selfishness, he doesn't take one wife. He takes two wives for himself. And we go on to read this. Lamech said to his wives, this is the second line of poetry that we have in the Bible. Adah and Zilhah, hear my voice, you wives of Lamech. Listen to what I say. I've killed a man for wounding me, a young man for striking me. If Cain's revenge is sevenfold, then Lamech's is 77-fold. Rather than being ashamed at murder, he's boasting and now he's bragging and writing a song about how some young kid hit him and he murdered him as a vengeful response. Now I want you to notice this. In Genesis chapter two, the very first line of Hebrew poetry, what it, there, there's a man who is singing to his wife. It's Adam singing to Eve and it's a love song. The second line of poetry that you ever see in Hebrew scripture is another man, but now he's singing to both of his wives and it's not a love song. He's singing a vengeful, violent poetry song about how this young man hurt him and he killed him. This is brokenness at every way. Friends, here's my point. Here's my point. Sin isn't content to stay put. It spreads, it grows, it infects, it hides so that it can pounce, so that it can lash out. And, attack. and that's why James, the brother of Jesus, said this in James 1. He says, but each person is tempted when he's lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it's fully grown, what does it do? Brings forth death. And that's the tragedy of Genesis chapter 4 and in Genesis chapter 5. We read this in chapter 5 verse 5. Thus all the days that Adam lived were 930 years, and what? And he died. Now, as Westerners, we read that verse, and what are we noticing? Adam lived 930 years? 
Let me tell you, no one in the ancient Near East was, was shocked by that or asking those questions. What is the phrase that would have stood out to them when they read this for the first time? Adam died? Adam died, the one that God made to live forever in the garden with him and, and peace and enjoy and Adam died. This is what happens when you sin. It leads to death. And if you read chapter five carefully, what you're going to read is, and he died, and he died, and he died, and he died, and he died. Death is the, the whole theme of Genesis chapter five. So friends, I know this is heavy. I know this is bleak, but imagine for just a minute being Eve in this story. Imagine being Eve. She starts out the chapter in chapter four, verse one, celebrating. I, I, have, I have acquired a son, a male son, by the help of the Lord. I've done something. I have given birth to the serpent crusher. I mean, she is full of, whether it's positive or negative, she is full of hope in, in Genesis chapter four. And now imagine at the very end of chapter four what's happening with, with Eve. Her son Cain has just murdered her other son Abel. Cain is no longer around. Cain is exiled. He's pushed out. So now she goes from having two sons to having no sons. What about the serpent crusher? Is there any hope? What's going to happen? Is, is this story going to continue to spiral downward till everybody just kills everybody and the earth ceases to exist? Well, that leads to the last and final thing that I want you to see, which is the solution to sin. The solution to sin. The first thing that I want you to notice here, and I'll be, I'll be brief, is I want you to notice that this is not just a chapter about the dangers of sin. This is actually a chapter about the kindness of God. In fact, over and over, we're getting, we're getting a portrait of God that's unbelievably kind and tender towards Cain. Think about this. In verse 6, God comes close to Cain, and he's checking on him. Hey, man, I noticed that you're angry. Are you okay? I noticed that your face is is down. I notice that you're depressed. What's going on there? And friends, when God comes to you and he asks you questions, it's not because he does not know the answer to the question. It's because he's wanting you to see what's really going on. He's wanting you to probe. He's wanting you to dig. He's wanting to help you understand. So here he's coming to Cain and he's going, man, I notice that you're angry. I notice that you're depressed. What's going on here? This is God just entreating Cain, kind of digging in with Cain, checking on Cain. And then in verse 7, it ramps up, and God, God even warns Cain. He says, hey, man, I want you to realize that there's a crouching killer outside your door. Please be careful. Hey, you know that if you do the right thing that you're going to be accepted, but if you do the wrong thing, you're, you, you, there's this killer that wants to have you and rule over you. Please be aware of that. He's being kind and patient. He doesn't shame Cain. He doesn't go, how dare you bring me fruit? How dare you have that heart posture? He's entreating him. Cain, where are you, man? What's going on? Is everything okay? Here's what you need to do, the right thing. This is unbelievable. And then in addition to that, notice the unfathomable kindness of God even after Cain kills Abel. He doesn't show up to Cain in a fiery, like, you know, a furnace of wrath and judgment and go, how dare you kill your brother? What does he do? He comes to Cain and he asks again, hey, where, where's your brother? Where's Abel? He, he's begging for Cain to just confess where he's at, to own what's happened, to, to ask for forgiveness and receive mercy. He doesn't do that. And then even when Cain gets exiled and it's, it, it's, it's like he's getting pushed out of his family, notice what happens in verse 13. Cain said to the Lord, my punishment is greater than I can bear. Behold, you have driven me today away from the ground and from your face I shall be hidden. I shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth and whoever finds me will kill me. Is that sincere repentance? 
Or is that him just wanting to cover his own skin? He's not repentant. He's going, my punishment is greater than I can bear. I've killed him, and, and now you're, you're like giving me a punishment that's too weighty for me to bear. Somebody's going to kill me. He's only worried for himself. And yet notice what God does in verse 15. Then the Lord said to him, not so. If anyone kills Cain, vengeance shall be taken on him sevenfold. And the Lord put a mark on Cain, lest any who found him should attack him. Then Cain went away from the presence of the Lord, and he settled in the, in the land of Nod, east of Eden. Cain doesn't say, hey, God, I'm really sorry. And yet God comes to this unrepentant, literally kind of like a dirtbag of a guy who just murdered his own brother and is only worried for himself. And even God is kind to him. The grace of God does not know any bounds. And friends, here's the reality. There's this tension within God, this divine tension where he longs to be merciful, he longs to be kind. He longs to be gentle to sinners. But there's also his justice and his wrath and his judgment that has to be answered for. In fact, we read this in Genesis first, uh, four, chapter 4, 25. Or, sorry, uh, verse 10, rather. says, And the Lord said, What have you done? And notice, the voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. Why is Abel's blood crying out to God? For judgment and justice. And so here is God. He loves Cain. He feels burdened for Cain. He wants to protect Cain's life. He wants to be kind to murderers. And yet here's Abel's blood spilled in the ground, crying out for justice that Cain deserves, what he is going to get what he deserves. How does God reconcile his justice and his mercy? How does he reconcile his kindness and the fact that sin has to be held accountable for? How does he do that? Well, we're told in verse 25, we're given a hint. Notice this. And Adam, it's at the very end of the story. Adam knew his wife again, and she bore a son and called his name Seth. For she said, notice, God has appointed for me another offspring instead of Abel, for Cain killed him. There's no bragging in her voice. There's only humility. God has, I have not acquired this. God has appointed for me a son. You know what happens with Seth? Seth grows up and he has a son. And that son grows up and he has a son. And that son grows up and he has a son, eventually has a son named Jesus. And this Jesus, he is the serpent crusher. He is the one that we hope in. And friends, this Jesus is a lot like Abel. Like Abel, Jesus was full of faith. Like Abel, Jesus was righteous completely. And like Abel, Jesus is gonna be innocently slaughtered by his brothers, and his blood is going to be spilled into the ground. And friends, here's the reality. When Jesus' blood goes into the ground, it cries out even still to this very day for justice. But the only difference between Abel's blood and Jesus' blood is that Jesus' blood is not crying out for justice against us. It's actually crying out for justice for us. This is what it says in Hebrews 12. But you have come to Jesus the mediator of a new covenant and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. Friends, Jesus' blood to this very day cries out for justice, but not against you, it's for you. So that every time, for those of us who have placed our faith in Jesus, every time we sin, every time we mess up, every time we blow it, every time we do something that was just dumb or truly evil, 
Jesus' blood cries out, and instead of it being justice against us, he's saying, Father in heaven, you cannot punish them because remember, I was punished in their place. You can't let them die for their sin because I died for their sin. You can't hold them accountable for their sin because I was held accountable for their sin. On the cross, his, his mercy and his justice meet together and he bears the weight of our sin, the weight of our curse, so that even people who have had sin crouching at their door and have, have dabbled and given in at times and done things that we're ashamed of, we could be loved, we could be forgiven, and we could have his blood speak a better word over our life. I wanna invite you, would you stand with me? Today, as we come to the table Man, there's, there's two realities. The first is if you're here and you're not a Christian, man, I wanna beg you, would you please come to Jesus today? If you do not place your faith in Jesus, if you don't place your hope in Jesus, then you are relying on your own blood. You're relying on your own blood, on your own life, on your own goodness, and it is not enough that you will die and you will face the penalty for your sin. Today, you are getting invited, you are getting you're, you're getting begged with to come to Jesus, to place your faith in Jesus. Let his blood cover you for your sin. If you're here and you're not yet a Christian, we love you. We, we are glad that you're here. And we want to be clear with you, there is no hope apart from Jesus. None at all. So what you can do is, friends, you can come. We're going to have men and women down front in a minute. You can talk with us. We'll tell you what it is to be a Christian, what it looks like to publicly put your faith in Christ, to get baptized. We'll take you out for coffee. We'll answer questions that you have. Maybe you don't want to do that. There's going to be prayers up on the screen that you could pray right where you are right now. If you are a follower of Jesus, man, I want to, I want to ask you, hey, where is sin crouching today? Where is sin hiding from you? Where have you made a home for a, for a killer in your heart? Where have you made a home? Where have you become comfortable with it? It is not content to just be friends with you. It wants to rule you. It wants to rule you. What are the places in your life right now that are cracks that if you don't address, they're gonna be caverns and that crouching killer is gonna pounce? What are those places? Today, you're being invited to come and remember that Jesus had his blood shed for you. So the way that he was serious about even his own body being killed for sin. Hey, friends, let's be serious as we receive his mercy today to, by his grace, kill our sin. Amen? You can receive his body that was broken for you, his blood that was shed for you. And I just want to say to those of you that are ashamed of, of uh, failures in your life, you're ashamed of like the ways that you've given into temptation. Today, you don't even feel like you, you deserve to come to this table. And the only reason why you're able to come is not because of your righteousness. It's the righteousness of Jesus. He, he had mercy on a guy like Cain, how much more on his own sons and daughters? He loves you. He's not embarrassed of you. He, he's only against your sin because it hurts you. He wants to love you. So come to him today. Don't be ashamed. If you're in Jesus, you can lift your head and receive his love, receive his grace, and receive help to kill sin. Amen? So come together. There's bread, there's wine or juice. Based on your conscience, grab what makes sense. Get in groups today and let's, let's remember. Let's go to war against our sin. Let's remember this sacrifice. You guys can come whenever you're ready.